That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you and so happy to be with you on the number one progressive radio show in the United States. I wanted to talk about what's going on on the southern border. I think this is actually a big deal and I don't think anybody is talking about it in the frame that it really needs to be viewed. When George W. Bush became president, two years earlier, his brother Jeb and his vice president Dick Cheney and a, and a bunch of other people had signed this project for a new American century letter that was on the internet for years and years. You can still find copies of it to Bill Clinton in 1998 saying that you have to invade Iraq now. George W. Bush becomes president. He puts Dick Cheney in charge of two things, the energy task force and the counterterrorism task force. The counterterrorism task force, because they'd been warned by Al Gore and Bill Clinton and Sandy Berger, who told us all about this on this program back about 10 years ago, his conversations with the incoming national security advisor for George Bush. So Bush put Cheney in charge of stopping bin Laden. Now, this was in February of 2001. That group did not meet until the week before 9-11, late August of 2001. Didn't even meet. They didn't care about bin Laden. And he put Cheney in charge of the Energy Task Force. And the task force started meeting immediately. And what were they doing in March and April and May of 2001? Dick Cheney and the Energy Task Force were carving up the oil in Iraq and figuring out which countries and which companies would be given the oil once the United States acquired that. So then 9-11 happened. 17 hijackers get lucky and hit a big building. Right? I mean, that's the bottom line. And George W. Bush, rather than going after the hijackers, president of Afghanistan, Mullah Omar, offered to arrest bin Laden and his merry band. It was about 5,000 people in Afghanistan at that time who were associated with al-Qaeda. It was a little tiny organization, had no power, and just pulled off a one-off. If he had been arrested and put in prison, everything would have been cool. But George W. Bush was like, no, I don't want to do that. I want to have a war because as a wartime president, I have more power. Plus, the war will give me entree into Iraq. So George W. Bush used these 17 hijackers and turned them into this giant boogeyman. I submit to you that Donald Trump is doing the same thing with 200 immigrants on the southern border right now. And we need to be very careful about where he's going to take this. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. And we need to be calling it out again. He's doing, along with Fox News, the exact same thing the New York Times was doing, Judith Miller, back uh, after 9-11. Be afraid, be very afraid. You're listening to Tom Hartman. The comment that Hillary Clinton made in Europe last week that has been so roundly criticized, she was speaking an inconvenient truth. I get it that apparently there are some Democrats, and I didn't, I didn't frankly believe this before I saw the response to Hillary Clinton, but apparently there are some Democrats who think that we should have basically unlimited immigration that anybody who wants to come into the United States should be allowed to under any circumstances. And I don't know of any country in the world that does that or that does that successfully, let's say. And the only reason that we were able to in the United States for a couple of hundred years was because we had 
hundreds of millions of acres, billions of acres, whatever it was, of land that we had stolen from Native Americans after we slaughtered somewhere between 50 and 100 million of them. There was probably somewhere between 10 and 50 million Native Americans. Some estimates are as high as 100 million in North America when Columbus first arrived. We wiped them out, and so there was lots of empty space. In fact, one of the major ways that we wiped them out was the flu. This is what took down the Mayan and the Aztec empires, was influenza. And they had absolutely no resistance. It was like 70 80% fatal to natives. So we had a bunch of land people could emigrate in and occupy, but that's over. That's long gone. I'm not opposed to immigration at all. I just want to make that very clear. Immigration is a vital thing for any nation, and particularly for a developed nation. We need immigrants. Immigrants, immigrants bring vitality. They bring energy. They bring a new perspective. Immigration is a good thing, and it needs to be done in a rational way. Trump's saying, oh, we only want people who can, quote, make a contribution to the United States is a fancy way of saying we only want people who are basically college educated, which is another fancy way of saying we only want people who want to come here from either the cream of the crop of poorer countries, that is the wealthy elites, the children of the wealthy elites from poorer countries, or from wealthy countries, which are mostly all white. When you peel away the layers of the Trump immigration policy, it comes down to race. And now they're throwing chemical weapons, tear gas, at children in diapers who have brown skin who are coming from south of our border. And these are refugees. Now. I want to just be real clear about this. When 9-11 happened, George W. Bush used that. Basically, he said, I'm going to get everything I want. That's what he told Mickey Herskowitz back in the day. This is Cindy Sheehan quoting. She'll, she'll explain it. As a matter of fact, in interviews in 1999 with respected journalists and longtime Bush family friend Mickey Herskowitz, then-Governor George Bush stated... One of the keys to being seen as a great leader is to be seen as commander-in-chief. My father had all this political capital built up when he drove the Iraqis out of Kuwait, and he wasted it. If I have a chance to invade, if I had that much capital, I'm not going to waste it. I'm going to get everything passed that I want to get passed, and I'm going to have a successful presidency, end quote. There you go. The guy was recording George W. Bush as he was writing a charge to keep Bush's autobiography for the 2000 campaign season. This was 1998 or 99, whatever Cindy said there. And he did. He used the hijackers and turned them into larger-than-life boogeymen. And the guy behind them, Osama bin Laden, turned him into Lex Luthor so that George W. Bush could be Superman. Think about this for a minute. You have to have a supervillain in order to have a superhero. I mean, there literally has to be a villain. The rule of fiction is that the goodness of your protagonist, your hero, is defined virtually exclusively by the evil of your antagonist, your villain. If Lex Luthor didn't exist, Superman comics would be incredibly boring. Oh, he goes to a 7-Eleven, stops a robbery. Oh, he stops a bank robbery. Oh, he's, you know, he prevents a car accident. Uh, he catches a woman jumping off a building. Whatever it may be, I mean, it would be boring. Right, he's using his superpowers for good. Yeah, okay, next. But when you get a super evil villain who is as powerful and smart, and in some ways more powerful, than your hero, so that your hero has a real challenge. Then your hero becomes a true hero. And George W. Bush understood this. And he turned Osama bin Laden into an absolute, oh my God, this guy, he has more power than anybody on earth. He is the great Osama bin Laden. Essentially, this is what Bush did. And with the help of Judith Miller and the New York Times, NBC, ABC, CBS, NPR, our media, he convinced us that we have to go after that other supervillain who, because his guy might have met in Czechoslovakia once at a cafe with one of bin Laden's guys, which it turned out never even happened, but because of this meeting, somehow bin Laden's magical evil superpowers rubbed off on the leader of Iraq, right? And so we had to take him down too. So Bush created two supervillains. Trump is creating a supervillain in the really bad dudes who are trying to break into our country.
And the people who watch Fox News are soaking it up. Oh my God, this is terrible. There's crooks and criminals and bad guys and oh, they're coming, to, they're taking our, you know. And I'm telling you, we're being played. We are being played. Immigration is literally at an all-time low into the United States. Has been for six years or so. Actually, it has been since, uh, since 2009, since the crash, since the Bush Great Recession. Immigration has been at a historic low. We actually need more immigrants. We need more immigration in the United States right now. And we need comprehensive immigration reform so that the people who are in this country and have demonstrated that they can make a contribution to this country, and particularly the people who were born here or came here as very young children, the dreamers, so that they can be legally, successfully, and rapidly transitioned into being members of our society. We've, we have to do this. But I'm telling you, Trump is using these people at the border as the next great boogeyman. I mean, he was presented with a number of possibilities. He could have said, oh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, he's the boogeyman. No, he says, no, I'm with him. He's given millions of dollars to the Trump organization. It could have been, uh, oh, you know, Russian oligarchs influencing the, and Putin and, and influencing the elections. You know, that's how he got elected. So he's not going to complain about that. He tried making France and Britain the bad guys or Germany. He tried making Angela Merkel the bad guy. You know, we just didn't buy it. We don't see them as supervillains. So what's he left with? He's left with where he started when he started his campaign. When he first went down those stairs and gave his opening speech, which was a gambit to get NBC to pay him as much as they were paying Gwen Stefani. Michael Moore lays this out in his new movie, 11-9, Fahrenheit 11-9, which was, I believe, the day that Trump rolled out his campaign. But he literally, it was a stunt. They paid people $50 an hour to stand in the crowd and hysterically applaud him, no matter what he said. It was a stunt to get more money out of NBC. And bingo, he's president now because he successfully demonized a group of people. And there were enough people in the United States who were like, oh, my God, we've got to we've got to be worried about the demons who bought it. This is serious stuff. And we have to be paying attention to what's going on. There is a strategy here. In my opinion, this isn't the end. This is just the beginning. We'll see where that goes. Frank in Caldwell, Idaho. Hey, Frank, what's on your mind? Thanks for watching Free Speech TV. Let's deal with the refugees. How many of the six, six point something million billion people on Earth do you want to move into the United States? How many do you figure we can support? What we have learned is that the United States can successfully absorb about a million people a year. That's what, that's what we've been doing for the last 40 years or so typically somewhere between 700,000 and a million. This year, we're probably going to take in about 100,000, maybe only 50,000 because Trump has dialed it back so much. But he should. the problem is that ever since Reagan gave amnesty to 5 million people and then officially stopped enforcing the law against hiring people who are not here legally, ever since Reagan did that, and he did that in order to bust the unions in the construction industry and in the meatpacking industry. So if you want to have a union job, Frank, Ronald Reagan did that in order to deny you that job. And no president has gone back on it. No president, no Democrat, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama didn't do it. No Republican has gone back to the policy that we had before 1986 when Ronald Reagan said, henceforth, we are no longer going to throw employers in jail. We're instead going to throw poor brown people in jail. That's what our policy is going to be. And as a result of that, we saw uh, what, 15 million, as, somewhere between 11 and 15 million people coming into the United States because there were all these wealthy white Republican employers, big companies, entire meatpacking industry, the entire construction industry, major donors to the Republican Party, loving this. I mean, just devastating their unions. You used to make $40, $50 an hour in meatpacking plants in the upper Midwest. You used to make, you know, a good so- in today's dollars, a good solid $40 an hour in construction industries. Now those people are working for $12 and $15 an hour because most of the people, many of the people working in those industries are people who are here without documentation. Trump doesn't want to do anything about that at all. He wants to keep the unions out, keep the wages low, keep the working people poor, and then use that poverty to gin up hatred against the very brown people who the Republican policy, the Reagan policy, invited into our country. I take it that you are willing to deport all the illegals in this country to bring up the wages for the uh, I don't think you have. I don't think you have to. I agree with Mitt Romney, Frank. Mitt Romney pointed out and campaigned on this, by the way, and this was the Republican Party's position before Trump, that if people have no access 
to government services. If you're not a citizen, can't get on Medicare or Medicaid. I mean, you can, you can get treated in a hospital ER and that kind of thing. But if you have no access to government services and you can't get a job, you're going to leave. You know, Romney called it self-deportation. And actually, that's how it used to be during the, during the Eisenhower administration, during the Kennedy administration, during the Johnson administration, all the way up to Reagan. You had about a million people who'd come north every year to, during the harvest season, particularly on the West Coast. They'd come all the way up to Oregon. And you had about a million people who would leave after the harvest season because that industry had basically had an exception. But, you know, not anymore. <laughs> now it's any unionized industry. It's bizarre. For centuries, if you wanted to experience great wine, you basically got what you paid for. That is until Cameron Hughes arrived on the scene 17 years ago. Cameron Hughes believes everyone should have access to great wine at a great price. Cam buys wine from high-end wineries from all around the world, bottling it under his own label and selling it directly to you. No middleman at 60 to 70% off what you'd pay for the same wine at retail, and it's delivered right to your door. We're talking award-winning, highly rated wines. With Cameron Hughes Wine, it's all about what's inside the bottle. High quality, great tasting wine at prices everyone can afford. Cam calls this winocracy, and he stands behind every bottle he sells. For a limited time, receive free shipping and a free Cameron Hughes corkscrew. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M, or text my name, Tom, that's T-H-O-M, to 511-511. Text Tom to 511-511. Don't pay more for high quality wines. Join the winocracy. Go to chwine.com slash Tom today. Standard text rates may apply. It's the Tom Marvin University Book Club. Our book today is Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism by Ian Bremmer. This is from chapter one titled Winners and Losers. It's time for a local revolution, the candidate told the roaring crowd. Countries are no longer nations, but markets. Borders are erased. Everyone can come to our country, and this has cut our salaries and our social protections. This dilutes our cultural identity. Marine Le Pen's four sentences capture every important element of the anxiety rising across the Western world. The borders are open and the foreigners are coming. They'll steal your job. They will cost you your pension and your health care by bankrupting your system. They will pollute your culture. Some of them are killers. Le Pen fell short in her bid to become France's president in 2017. But her message remains compelling for the 21st century politics of us versus them. But this is not a story about Marine Le Pen or Donald J. Trump or any of the other populist powerhouses who have emerged in Europe and the United States in recent years. Spin the camera toward the furious crowd. There's the real story. It's not the messenger that drives this movement. It's the fears, often, if not always, justified, of ordinary people. Fears of lost jobs, surging waves of strangers, vanishing national identities, and the incomprehensible public violence associated with terrorism. It's the growing doubt among citizens that government can protect them, provide them with opportunities for a better life, and help them remain the masters of their fate. As of December 2015, just 6% of people in the United States 4% in Germany, 4% in Britain, and 3% in France believe the world is getting better. The pessimistic majority suspects that those with power, money, and influence care more about their cosmopolitan world than they do about their fellow citizens. Many citizens of these countries now believe that globalization works for the favored few, but not for them. And they have a point. Globalization, the cross-border flow of ideas, information, money, people, goods, and services, has resulted in an interconnected world where national leaders have increasingly limited ability to protect the lives and livelihoods of their citizens. In the digital age, borders no longer mean what citizens think they mean. In some ways, they barely exist. Globalism, the belief that the interdependence that created globalization is a good thing, is indeed the ideology of the elite. Political leaders of the wealthy West have been globalism's biggest advocates, Building a system that has propelled ideas, information, people, money, goods, and services across borders at a speed and on a scale without precedent in human history. Sure, more than a billion people have risen from poverty in recent decades, and economies and markets have come a long way from the financial crisis. But along with new opportunities come serious vulnerabilities, and the refusal of the global elite to acknowledge the downsides of the new interdependence confirms the suspicions of those losing their sense of security and standard of living that elites in New York and Paris have more in common with elites in Rome and San Francisco than, than with their discarded countrymen 
in Tulsa, Turin, Tuscaloosa, and Toulon. In short, just as the financial crisis had a cascading effect through financial markets and real economies around the world, so the sources of anger convulsing Europe and America will send shockwaves through dozens of other countries. Some will absorb these shocks. Some of them won't. As poorer people in developing countries become more aware of what they're missing or losing, many will pick up rocks. The book Us Versus Them by Ian Bremmer. We've been talking about immigration as Donald Trump's uh, parents-in-law, I guess, mother and father-in-law, Melania's parents, the Knaves, K-N-A something, whatever it is, uh, just became U.S. citizens, right, last year or earlier this year. <laughs> it's like, yeah, let's, let's have, a, let's have a, a meaningful conversation about that. But on the line with us right now is our old buddy Ralph Nader, who's got a new book out. This is a, a novel, a fable titled How the Rats Reformed the Congress, a fable by Ralph Nader. Ralph, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, Tom. It's designed to make people laugh themselves seriously enough to organize in every congressional district what I mischievously call Congressional Rat Watchers Group to turn Congress around. <laughs> it's a lot easier than we think, and we turn Congress around. A lot of the problems on people's minds start being resolved, whether yeah. it's the facing up to climate disruption, which you just went through, climate devastation, uh, converting to solar energy and renewable energy, or full Medicare for all, free choice of doctor and hospital, much more efficient, living wage, repairing America's schools, bridges, sewage, drinking water systems, by revamping the tax laws, cutting up back on crony capitalism or corporate welfare, and debloating the massively wasteful uh, military budget that's been criticized by more than a few retired admirals and generals. That's what this book's about. That's a hell of a list, Ralph. It's like, you know, Bernie's 10-point suggestion for what the Democratic Party should do. This is, what are the priorities that you see that progressives should be focusing on as the Democrats at least take control of the House and as the, as the Congressional Progressive Caucus now is, if not the largest, the second largest caucus in all of Congress? This seems like a good thing, good start. It deals, uh, Tom, with what I call a platform of long overdue changes and redirections, reforms that affect everybody in this country. And it just happened to have liberal and conservative support. Start with living wage. Uh, they've been suppressing the minimum wage for years. 30 million workers make less today uh, than the workers made in 1968 adjusted for inflation. Uh, and workers are twice more productive because of automation. They're not getting the gains. That'll pump hundreds of billions of dollars into the economy and make a huge reduction in poverty in this country. Uh, the second thing that's supported by increasing numbers of liberals and conservatives is full Medicare for all. And that, that gives you your free choice of doctor and hospital and none of these narrow, cruel networks that people are being shoved into. And uh, no more of these computerized billing craziness and overcharges and so forth. We have Canada as an example, a country where people look like us. It works a lot better than the corrupt system here, where some 35,000 Americans every year die because they can't afford health insurance to get diagnosed and treated in time. You can imagine how many injuries uh, and illnesses uh, could be prevented. And then law and order for corporate scams, corporate crimes, ripoffs that you read about in the papers all the time. You know, from payday loan rackets to credit card overcharges to bank penalties to deceptive advertising, uh, drugs that don't work are pushed onto people. Um, that has huge left-right support. And then the big one is reforming Congress, which is what this book's about, how the rats reform the Congress, because that's the entry portal to changing the country. They say, why? Well, first of all, it's the smallest and most powerful branch of government. It controls the appropriations, tax, investigative powers, you name it. Uh, second, it's only 535 men and women who put their shoes on like you and I do every, every day. Uh, and third, we know their names, not some huge federal bureaucracy. We know their names. They want our votes. 
they come and, you know, engage in flattery and, fo- and fooling us and flummoxing us because they desperately want our votes, which are more important to them than the money they raise from Wall Street and elsewhere. And, and we can take control of the Congress. What is the Congress? It has huge amount of our sovereign power. Uh, we the people is the way the preamble of the Constitution starts. Not we the Congress, we the corporation. Number two, it has control of the money. And all these taxes that are being subsidizing the tax escapes and loopholes of the rich and powerful can be sent back to community America to deal with the public services instead of funding huge weapon systems we're never going to use and huge bailouts and corporate welfare uh, from New York to Houston. So those are the beginning ones, and they're very realizable because my rule of thumb, Tom, and you can, uh, as a historian without peer on talk radio, you, Tom Hartman, know that every social justice movement we're proud of in this country, every social justice movement, never took more than 1% of vigorous citizens in congressional districts linking together marches, demonstrations, summoning the senators, going to the election, replacing the representatives of senators where needed. And we, we organized less than 1,000 people in the 1960s to regulate the auto industry, which has saved and averted 3.5 million deaths, among other benefits. So we know what we're talking about. And this book, How the Rats Reformed the Congress, is an attempt to grab people's attention, because there's, there's a rat infestation, by the way, in Washington, D.C., and literally. And there's a rat infestation uh, out of the catacombs under the Congress, and in this fable, they start climbing up the pipes looking for food, and they get in the toilet bowls, and you can imagine the embarrassment of the lawmakers, and they try to cover it up, and a uh, Damon Runyon-type reporter uh, breaks the story. There's a media frenzy, massive derision by the American people. They suddenly pay attention in Congress instead of say, ah, pox on all their houses, I don't want anything to do with them. They turn from indifference to focusing on Congress. Members of Congress are so embarrassed, they start pushing legislation that represents the people's interest for a change. And then various citizen groups start cropping up all over. All the talent that suppressed civic talent in this country starts coming to the forefront, and they just basically develop a whole agenda to change the country for the better with huge public support massive rallies surrounding Congress, never mind, you know, walking down Pennsylvania Avenue, day after day, the media goes nuts covering it, and in a very few months, the changes are made. History shows if you wait too long for a change that most Americans want, uh, like uh, President Truman recommended universal health insurance, we still don't have it, decades later the uh, the uh, corporate lobbyists learn how to game it and delay it and dilute it and so all this happens in a very realistic way once the jolt of the rats wakes the country up and uh, people can uh, connect with our website ratsreformcongress.org where we detail exactly how to form a congress watchdog group in your district you can start with 10 20 30 you get enough people, you summon the senators and representatives to your own town meetings, your own agenda. You, you turn the dynamic where they control you, you control them, because you can point to the Constitution, we the people, not we the Congress. So anybody who wants this book or wants a discount of 5 or 10 at half price, just you can get the details. Go to ratsreformcongress.org, and also you'll get the playbook on how to organize these things, how to put on press conferences, how to mobilize people. And it never takes more than 1%, uh, a third of 1%. We're talking to Ralph Nader. He's got a new book out, How the Rats Reformed the Congress. The website is ratsreformcongress.org. You just said something that just kind of blew my mind. You said it's never taken more than 1%. I had always believed in Thorsten Veblen's notion that, that it really takes about 20% of people in a, in a society to come to a new conclusion to create the what he referred to as the influencer class. I mean, this was back in, mm-hmm. the, I think, the, the 1890s or the 1920s or 
whenever. One percent. I mean, you know, and then and then I was thinking about that, you know, like the Women's March after uh, Trump. That was a million people, but we're 300 million people. That was a third of one percent. One percent is enough to actually change a nation. As long as they reflect majority opinion. And there's a lot of majority opinion on all kinds of things. Once you break through the divide and rule strategy of the ruling groups, I've known that for 2,000 years, haven't they? How to divide and rule. Right. Uh, and they divide and rule Americans on certain issues they disagree, like reproductive rights or... Uh, Gay marriage. Area, immigration, yeah. etc. But, as I did put in my book, Unstoppable, the Emerging Left-Right Alliance to Dismantle the Corporate State, there are dozens of areas in this country. Solar energy, massive support. Repairing America, infrastructure, massive support. Cracking down on corporate crooks in Wall Street, massive support. Breaking up the big New York banks that are too big to fail, and you have to bail them out, you the small taxpayer. Massive support. Well, in that case, then, Thorsten Veblen, that's about how to influence the majority. And now we've got more than 50% of people who want Medicare for all, more than 50% of the people who want comprehensive immigration reform. You know, we, we could go through the list. And then you only need 1% of activists. That's your point. That's right. And it, it basically says to Washington, D.C., don't divide us anymore, liberal, conservative, red state, blue state. We all bleed because of your corruption. We all yeah. bleed because you've sold our country to the highest corporate bidders. We all get ripped off by the insurance companies and, and the banks uh, and the health insurance industry the same way. You're not going to divide us anymore. Yeah. That's why rats reform congress.org that website is not only how you can get this book it's not that long it's about 170 pages ratsreformcongress.org hang on just a second here this is the tom hartman program and ralph nader ralph thanks so much for being with us today thank you very much tom and your great work on talk radio thank you it's always great talking with you ralph I've never endorsed a weight loss product before Riduzone. Why Riduzone? I've seen firsthand how well it worked for my wife. With the wedding coming up, Louise wanted to lose a little weight. She read about university research and how one molecule helps regulate appetite. Riduzone is designed to boost levels of that one molecule along with your metabolism so you stop craving the wrong foods and you burn calories faster. Once her appetite and cravings were under control, she said losing weight was easy. She has more energy on her hikes and she looks amazing. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough and you want to lose the weight you've been struggling to lose, get non-prescription, FDA-accepted Riduzone. While supplies last, use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive 30% off, plus free shipping. Go to tryriduzone.com. That's T-R-Y-T-R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. Tryriduzone.com. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive 30% off, plus free shipping. TryRiduZone.com. That's T-R-Y-T-R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. TryRiduZone.com. Promo code TOM. And welcome to Tom Hartman University, our book club. And today we're reading from Ralph Nader's Breaking Through Power. It's easier than we think. This is from page 74, the chapter, How the System is Rigged. According to Russell Mokaber, editor of the Corporate Crime Reporter, quote, corporate crime takes far more lives, causes far more injuries and diseases, and steals far more money than street crime. But the vast amount of law enforcement resources, mass media attention, and prison cell blocks are devoted only to street crime. Just consider these preventable casualties. Almost 60,000 annual workplace-related fatalities from both disease and trauma. 54,000 deaths a year from air pollution. Over 100,000 lives lost as a result of medical malpractice. Nearly 100,000 lives lost from hospital-induced infections. Over 100,000 fatalities from adverse effects of drugs. And over 40,000 deaths every year due to inadequate or no health care coverage for diagnosis, treatment, and medication. There are far larger numbers of sicknesses and injuries attached to these data sets. These statistics have haunting human faces. Children, women, men, and families destroyed by uncontrollable, monetized minds. Whether they are caused by recklessness, criminal negligence, or worse, the key factors in common are the preventability of such pain and the suffering inflicted from commercially induced neglect, predation, manslaughter, and homicide. By comparison, street and home homicides do not exceed 14,000 lives lost annually. Now see how companies have made sure they have the laws that they need to go after you and how they make sure that the law can be used as their punisher. 
The giant multi-tiered home mortgage business, now driven by the same one percenters who profited from crashing the economy in 2008, can nail you if you misrepresent information on your mortgage application. Suppose you say you're going to occupy your house as a principal residence to get a lower interest rate and down payment, and you don't for some reason. Lenders can call the loan and demand repayment if the mortgage balance is outstanding. Absent that payment, the lender can seize your home, foreclosure. In addition, by claiming you committed bank fraud, these companies can use the FBI against you. As the veteran housing columnist Kenneth R. Harvey warned, this can trigger severe financial penalties, prosecution, and prison time for ordinary Americans. But how many bankers feel the cold metal of handcuffs tighten on their wrists when their crimes rob American families of their homes and life savings? Health insurance companies have similar supporting laws to deny medical coverage by alleging illegal activities. This could mean anything from non-disclosure of traffic violations to gun accidents, even when there has been no conviction. It could mean something as vague as hazardous behavior, according to the New York Times. If a company paid you and comes back for their money, they can get you prosecuted for fraud. These corporate goliaths are too big to fail. If they know how to enact laws to make sure that you are, and they know how to enact laws to make sure that you are too small to stop them. Corporate state culture, the plutocracy whom oligarchy is giving is given an ex- astonishing exoneration so long as it claims the violence and mayhem are not their direct purpose but an unfortunate byproduct that just couldn't be helped like when innocent people are accidentally killed by u.s drone attacks the government seems to quietly get a free pass it's almost as if corporations get away with a permanent permanent defense of an institutional insanity a defense going global in terms of deadly supply chains from horrific African mines to dangerous factories in China, in India, and Bangladesh. Deoxygenation and poisoning of the vast oceans, estuaries, rivers, and lakes. Upping greenhouse gases into rapid climate destabilization. Extending the range of infectious diseases due to habitat and ecological disru- disruption and desecration. And changing the nature of nature itself through unregulated genetic engineering and nanotechnology. Even with 6 million slow, agonizing deaths a year globally attributed to the tobacco business, cigarettes are still demonically promoted by one percenters who reap staggering profits from selling their addictive and poisonous product, especially in developing nations where regulations protecting children do not exist. The excuse is forever that corporatists have no intention, knowledge, or reason to do harmful things. The institutional insanity defense again. Or the manufacturers of weapons of mass destruction whose militant advertisements say they are just helping the national defense, but are not at all responsible for their products' use in the coercive policies of empire and perpetual war. Is it institutional madness or infantilism? Did the World War II allies let the giant Krupp works in Germany get away with this excuse after the war ended? It's time for people to take away these rationalizations of omnicide from corporations that demand they be legally privileged as persons for their pursuit of profits, but not as persons, for our pursuit of them as criminal predators and refugees from justice. The book by Ralph Nader, Breaking Through Power. Rather concerning stories in the news. Could this be the beginning of World War III or something like that? The Russians and the Ukrainians are going at it at sea. And the Russians are accusing us, the United States, of collaborating with the Ukrainians in producing a, an, an intentional provocation. And I don't know what we have said in response to that yet. Um, this isn't getting a lot of press. But uh, this, and in fact, I was thinking, you know, we should get Steve Cohen back on the program and find out what he thinks, but he's apparently out of the country. And this is, this is concerning. This is very concerning. Meanwhile, we are using chemical weapons. Tear gas is a chemical weapon against babies in diapers, literally, on our southern border. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is talking about how wonderful the economy is that he has created. And what we're looking at, of course, is the tail end of the Obama boom, the kind of fading echo of the Obama stimulus that the Republicans so aggressively opposed. And what we're seeing is that the economy is now beginning to fade really substantially. Chuck Butler, who writes for Aiden Research, 
does a newsletter that you get when you subscribe to the Aiden Forecast. It's called the Daily Fennig. And in today's Daily Fennig, Chuck is talking about what is going on here. He goes through a whole list of things that are in downturn right now that you know we're basically not talking about. Housing starts, new business startups, credit, corporate debt, all these things that are like teetering right now. And, you know, the market's up today, but it's like, is this the beginning of the end of the Obama boom? When George W. Bush came into the White House, Bill Clinton left him a trillion dollar budget surplus, nearly a trillion dollars. In fact, over the next 20 years, we would have paid off the national debt if George Bush had just kept things going the way that Bill Clinton had left them. And similarly, when Obama left, the debt was rising, but it was rising because of two wars that George W. Bush had started and because of George W. Bush's tax cuts. But it had stabilized, or relatively stabilized. I think we were down to about a three or $400 million, billion dollar national annual deficit that was adding to the debt. So Obama had radically slowed it down, and he had put the economy back together. Now, the problem is, the problem with the way that it got put back together is that it was done along neoliberal lines rather than neo-Keynesian lines. From the 1930s until the 1980s, we understood, we being the government policymakers, economists, the average person, the average working person, we all understood that the economy is driven by what's called aggregate demand, what, you know, by wages. Wages drive the economy. When people have money in their pocket, they buy things. When they buy things, that creates jobs, right? That, that demand for goods and services is what facilitates the production and distribution uh, and delivery of goods and services. And we all understood that. This is John Maynard Keynes. You know, he's like, you want to get out of the Great Depression? He said, you pay everybody to do something. Put money in their pockets and they will start buying things. And as they buy things, that will put business back to work. And he was asked, I mean, he, he testified before Congress about this, and some congressman said, well, you know, just give money to people? And Keynes was like, well, you want them to work for it. People want to have the emotional good feeling associated with working, right? There's, there's self-respect that comes along with working and getting paid. So you want people to work for it. But, you know, he said it's such a, a political truism. I mean, this is so real politically speaking, or economically speaking, rather, this is so real that you could literally hire one guy to dig a hole and pay him, and another guy to fill the hole and pay him. And then the next day, another guy digs the hole and another guy fills and you just keep paying them, and eventually you will jumpstart your economy. In other words, you don't actually have to produce anything of value. As long as you inject money at the bottom of the economy, at the worker level, that money will rise up and it'll float the economy. And that's exactly what happened in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. That's exactly how it worked. And every single one of those decades outside of the 40s, you know, we had World War II, or the 30s, rather, the late 30s. But every one of those decades, we have, you take World War II out of the equation, we had more than 3% annual GDP growth over each decade. We have not accomplished that in a sustained fashion since then, with the exception of, you know, six years of the Obama administration. And Trump, you know, he's, he's claiming this. So to Chuck Butler's comments, talking about the numbers and all these kind of things. And his point was, he says, in 2007, we saw major stocks selling. The rot on housing's vine is getting more exposed every day. Finally, the economic expansion is either near an end or having already or already having put in its last quarter of strong growth. He says, from David Rosenberg's Twitter feed, the credit contraction is starting and recession follows. See rates, royal small mortgage firms on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. The number of U.S. non-bank mortgage lenders has shrunk 3.5% from a year ago. Over half of the $1.2 trillion of originations came from this group this year. David Rosenberg says, CapEx orders decline at a 2.9% annual rate in the three months to October. CapEx is capital expenditures. In other words, companies are not, not even repairing their own factories. And they're certainly not making new capital expenditures. When that happens, that means companies are seeing a recession on the horizon. 
Meanwhile, we're seeing, you know, this, this over on Common Dreams, this, the headline, corporate greed at its worst, after reaping $514 million from GOP tax scam and billions in public subsidies, GM to fire nearly 15,000 workers. Now, this is the Reaganomics version. See, we had Keynesianomics from the 1930s to the 1980s, where we understood that if you want to have a strong economy, you have to have workers, a strong middle class that's well paid, because that's what floats everything. And then Reagan came along and said, no, 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 that's not how it works. If you want to have a strong economy, you give money to the very rich people and to the big corporations. You give them as much of the tax money as you possibly can, either in the form of tax cuts or in the form of outright gifts. And that money will trickle down to the average worker. And we have literally been doing trickle-down economics since Ronald Reagan became president in 1981. Nobody has changed this. This is still our system of uh, you know, economics as the United States of America. And the clearest evidence of this is when uh, George W. Bush was president and the economy collapsed, he was provided with two options. He could have done what FDR did. You had all these banks that were on the, on the verge of collapsing, right? which is what happened. The first week that FDR came into office, all the banks in America closed. And so you had all these banks that were on the verge of collapse. And George Bush could have done two things. He could have done what FDR did. What FDR did is he said to everybody who had a mortgage out there, I will buy your mortgage. The federal government will buy your mortgage, and we're going to convert it into a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. The average mortgage back then was five years. We're going to convert it to a 30-year fixed rate, and you will be able to keep your home, and your payments will go from $200 a month down to $20 a month or whatever it is. And that program wound up in the 1960s. I mean, that's when it ended. And that saved the American homeowner across the United States. And that put the banks back, to, back in business. George Bush was told you could do what FDR did, which will save the working people and it'll save the economy. Or you can do what these new neoliberal economic advisors suggest you should do, Reaganomics, and inject all the money at the top, at the level of the banks. And that's what George Bush did. $24 trillion was injected at the level of the banks, the big corporations, General Motors is among them. It got almost a half, a, it got more than a half a billion dollars. Inject all this money and then hope that that money is going to trickle down to the average worker. And, you know, that was our policy. And Obama continued that policy and, and uh, Trump is continuing that policy now. We are still using neoliberal economics or AKA Reaganomics. And until we change, until we understand that it all starts with the workers, it doesn't all start with the billionaires, it doesn't all start with the entrepreneurs, it doesn't all start with the business people, it doesn't all start with the corporations, it all starts with the workers making enough money that they can buy things that that, until we understand that as a nation, we're going to continue making stupid economic decisions as a country. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And this recession that's just starting right now and is going to pick up steam right after the first of the year, it's going to get a whole hell of a lot worse if we don't understand what's going on. Troy in Brooklyn. Hey, Troy, what's up? Hey, Tom. Quick question. Has there ever been a point in time, like now wages are going up, they're looking to increase prices, and that'll increase inflation. Has there ever been a point in time in history where they have maybe put a cap on inflation, like wages increasing by corporations? unless they could have some type of proof that their costs have increased instead of just artificially inflating it. Right. Then they basically just reset everybody back at zero. Even if you raise wages, if they keep raising the cost of everything, you're never able to actually get ahead. In part. I mean, you know, what you're talking about is is revaluing a currency. I was uh, visiting Israel back, geez, 30 years ago, right after they revalued the uh, shekel. Every thousand shekel note became a hundred shekel note, as I recall. I think they knocked one zero off. They might have knocked two zeros off and try and get their currency to look like other currencies of the developed world. That's not an uncommon thing, but that doesn't have a lot to do with inflation. That's what you do after a long bout of inflation, which is what had happened. But basically, inflation is caused by two things, Troy. One of them is government policy that specifically says we as the government want to borrow when we pay the money back, we want to pay it back with dollars that are worth less than the dollars that we borrowed. So we're going to borrow a trillion dollars and we're going to pay it all back with interest. But when it's all paid back, we'll have only paid back in today's dollars the equivalent of, say, 900 billion. And the way that they do that is they reduce the value of the currency every year 
by typically on average around two or three percent. And we have been doing this regularly since the creation of the Fed in 1913, which is why people were paid. You know, I, ha I have my grandfather's brother's pay stubs when he worked at the post office in New York. And uh, my recollection is he was making like eight or ten dollars a week, something on that order. Right. Very, very. Which seems like very little money. But actually, he could live on that. You know, his rent was like three dollars a week. You could buy a meal for five cents for a nickel five and dime store was because literally everything at Woolworths was either five cents or 10 cents. And today it would be the dollar store or the five or $10 store. So government creates inflation very specifically that way. But the way that usually inflation gets out of control is when a commodity, which is essential to the functioning of the economy, when that commodity starts rising in price really radically, really rapidly. And the only example that I can think of in the history of the United States, or the modern history of the United States, the post-1913 development of the Fed, was in the 1970s. We supported Israel in the, uh, in the, in the war against Egypt. And well, actually, twice we supported Israel. And the Arabs cut off our oil, twice. Uh, the Arab oil boycotts of, uh, I forget the years now, but there were two of them. One was in the early 70s and the other was in the mid 70s. And what happened was that the price of oil went from, you know, 15 or $20 a barrel up to like 50, $60 a barrel, bang, just like that. And because our economy was entirely fueled on oil at that point in time, everything became more expensive. And that's inflation. You know, and it took a while for wages to catch up with that. Now, the way that the Fed tried to control that inflation was by increasing interest rates. Driving up interest rates suppresses economic activity, but it doesn't compensate very effectively for the price of an essential commodity like oil going up as much as it did. And that's why, even though that happened during the Nixon administration, and then you had the Ford administration. It wasn't until the Carter administration that that inflation from the jacking up of the price of oil started to wring itself out of the economy and work its way out. Jimmy Carter got blamed for a lot of it, but he had nothing to do with it. So those are the principal ways that inflation you know, happens, either intentional or uh, as a result of commodities. So I don't know of any country that's ever rebooted or said we're going to go with zero inflation or zero debasement of the currency. It seems like every country that uses fiat currency over time debases their currency. We can debate whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, and that's kind of a whole separate conversation. Troy, thanks for the call. Imagine the panic that swept over this dad. He was working late when he got an alert on his smartphone. His Blink motion-activated security camera picked up something. He opens the Blink app and views a video clip of a man peering through his kitchen window. He calls 911 and alerts his wife. Preventing situations like this is what Blink is all about. The point of having a home security system is to help alert you before some creep breaks into your home, not after. Blink motion-activated HD cameras are wire-free, set up in minutes, and run on batteries that last up to two years. And Blink's live feed option lets you monitor what's happening at home anytime, anywhere from your smartphone. No contracts, no subscriptions, and Blink even works with Alexa. Here's the deal. Get your Blink camera system starting at less than $100. No contracts or subscriptions. Visit BlinkProtect.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M, for details. BlinkProtect.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. BlinkProtect.com slash Tom. Blink is an Amazon company. So let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, a new book by Ellen Ratner. On the line with us is former Congressman Bob Ney, the author of Sideswiped. Congressman, welcome back. Well, thank you, Tom. And welcome Appreciate back it. from India. And thank you for taking a call from me last weekend in India that led to this article that I wrote. I just tweeted it out this morning. Uh, I think Salon just put it up, too, in which we talked about the Help America Vote Act and yeah. how it's been misused by Republicans to basically deny people their vote through the placebo ballots, the provisional ballots. Uh, and I loved your article, and I want to follow up any way I can with anybody that wants to listen to what you know we really intended. And I have to tell you real quick one funny story. I was sitting eating with friends, and my cell phone was laying there, and your number has your name as it comes up. And before I saw it, one of the Indian guys said, Tom Hartman's calling you. He knows who you are. They, oh, my. They, they follow you. It's in, interesting. In, in, uh, were you at the Dalai Lama's place? Were you in Dharamsala? I was, I was up in Dharamsala. No, but the, in, the Indians follow you because they've seen you on TV over there. 
Oh, wow. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. You, I, I've watched you over there. But it was so funny when all of a sudden he said, Tom Hartman's calling you. I said, what? And then I looked out at my phone, yeah. and I saw your name coming through. So sure enough. Well, was, thank you for funny. taking the call. That is funny. Yes, sir. So what's Absolutely. going on in the world, Bob? Well, this is really sad. I mean, I was going to start out with uh, MBS, Mohammed bin uh, Salman, but what has happened now, uh, this is uh, nationally affected, but in Lordstown, General Motors has announced it's going to shut down the Lordstown plant early next year. That's in Trumbull County, uh, Ohio. There are more people working at that plant than they are in the city of Lordstown. Yeah, this so is, this is by the way, I, this is uh, Donald Trump was there during the was campaign. There. And and this was in the Mahoning Valley. And he said, yeah. and I quote, the area's jobs are all coming back. They're all coming back. We're going to fill up these factories or rip them down and build new ones. And then he tweeted um, later with a picture from that area. We are going to rebuild our crumbling infrastructure. There's no better place to begin this campaign than in the great state of Ohio. Tremendous honor to be here today at a state-of-art training site where the skills of American workers are forged and refined. Uh, you think he's going to tweet about these factories being shut down? Well, he'll, you know, he'll blame somebody else, but I, he might even lay off of this tweet. Yeah, he had said that, don't sell your homes. You know, We're, we're going to make everything back. And here's the thing about this announcement, I think, Tom, the timing of the announcement. Right before Christmas, uh, I believe. Yeah, no, the, no, the timing after the midterms. Oh, I see. Nobody's going to convince me that they didn't know this was coming down, because this is not just only Lordstown. These are some other factories that's going to, to lay off thousands of people. Oh, this would have They're flipped the governor's sure. race in Ohio. Well, see, there, that's my point. This could have done a lot of things. Absolutely. You know, Mike DeWine was uh, running, of course, in Ohio, and uh, it, it absolutely could have, uh, you know, made probably a difference in certain areas. But uh, I, I just can't believe that how many days now after the election, I can't believe they didn't know prior. Yeah. And I well, think that if, if you're able to dig into this somehow, somebody, they're going to find out that they knew, and they literally it. Yeah, the sad because thing, Bob, is that if we, if I had the smoking gun evidence of this, that a year ago these guys sat around and said, okay, this is what we're going to do, uh, you know, and here's how we're going to do it, and we're going to do it right after the election so we don't piss off the president or whatever, or so we don't help the Democrats, that if I had that smoking gun and I could hand it to you and you handed it to the rest of the corporate media in America, they'd go, so what? Yeah, I, oh, I know. This is business and, as usual. And, you know, no notice on this. And, and in the big picture, there, there, a lot of people are outraged. Now, some aren't, but most are. And the outrage is coming because, uh, one, the company has failed to invest in the American workers, period. And, two, they received a bailout during the recession, and they reaped the benefits last year of the GOP's tax bill. Well, and Barack Obama literally saved General Motors from bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it's and, not uh, just a bailout, yeah. right? It was, it was huge. Sure. And, uh, and this is how, you know, how they, uh, they pay it back. And uh, it's just, it's outrageous. It's, it, again, it not just only affects Ohio, but all the spinoff jobs from it, you know, it's, uh, but it's a, it's a devastating blow to Trumbull County up there. Right. Just wanted to and ultimately it's going to be a, you know, I mean, we're talking 14,000 workers in, in several cities, a couple of them in Canada, but, uh, you know, if you lay off 14,000 well-paid unionized workers, you're going to impact the health, well-being, and Everything. and and uh, resilience of probably over a hundred thousand people. Uh, yeah, absolutely. All the spinoff jobs, you know, their, right. their ability to help. They help with charities. They help with the community. The fire. They shop at the local stores. They go to. They eat at the local restaurants. All that stuff. Bob, we got. We have forty-five seconds. What else is up? Oh, um, Mohammed bin Salman, I mean, uh, Lindsey Graham, I think, is going to sit with the CIA, go full force against this. The president, I don't think, really? cares. The president's on the opposite side. I think Graham, I will bet you, is going to sit with the CIA and come swinging back at the Saudis. It, uh, he's been, I know, the big Trump guy, but I think that's going to happen. Wow. But, but Trump I needs the Saudi money. So I mean, the, the, the Saudis and the UAE are kind of the same thing. And the UAE well, just gave Jared Kushner a billion dollars so that his, his right. building at 666 Fifth Avenue wouldn't go bankrupt, didn't they? I mean, what? This, right. This is Jared Kushner telling his father-in-law, no, you've got to hang in there with NBS. That's what this is about, because Whoa. the president would never be, after knowing what the CIA told him, would never be on the other side of this unless there was some other force here. doesn't have anything to do with American war products. They'll buy them anyway from us. Right. And it's got nothing to do with oil. I mean, they're a nothing minor supplier to now to us. And in fact, if we went back to the law as it was, uh, I think it was repealed three, three, four years ago, that it's illegal to export oil from the United States, we would have more than enough oil just from our domestic production in Mexico right. and Canada.
Bob Nay, Talk Media News, the author of Sideswipe. Thank you, Bob. All right. Great talking with you. We'll be right back. Mark in Lowell, Maryland. Hey, Mark, you have the last minute. What's up? There was an article in the Washington Post by Mr. Samuelson or Samuels mm -hmm. about the myth of, of uh, stagnant wages. And he was saying that uh, to the statistics that he had put in the article that wages have actually increased over like the last 40 years or so. But yeah. that's not what my wallet says. And I just wanted to know if you had read the article and what was your what was your I have not, Mark, that? but some but very often these guys play games with us. Wages is typically used to describe, particularly when they want to weasel word things, is used to describe people who work for a salary. People who have, you know, you're, you're making $26,000 a year, $35,000 a year, $190,000 a year, a salary, that's a wage. But that's not an hourly income. And when you've got half the economy working on an hourly basis, when they talk wages, they typically don't count that. So you, get up, you come up with very, very deceptive numbers. It depends on who the economist is, Mark. The old saying, figures don't lie, but liars can figure. You know, there you go. I, I didn't see the piece by Samuelson, and I'm not sure what it was, but you know, for what it's worth, there's that. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll continue our conversation tomorrow. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there and get active. Tag. Be part of Ralph Nader's 1%. Tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Thank you.